episode 11? Snake Eyes. Episode 11? We've made it this far? We're back. You know, last time we took a break, we had two hit wonders of the world come in, fill that little gap. None of that two-hit wonders shit this time around. One-hit wonders. We're getting back to our roots. Don't call it a comeback, baby. Who are you? I'm having a little amnesia right now, but last I checked, I believe I am maxed in Stenstrom. Who, who, pray tell, are you, sir? If the driver's license in the wallet in my back pocket... Has anything to say about it? It's a big if. I am Trevor Ickrath. It's your middle name. Max, how you been? <laughs> been okay, Trevor. Springtime. My allergies are fucked up. I cannot swallow enough allergy medications, enough antihistamines. I cannot be fixed. I am I am a I'm a snot machine that is running out of control. Gross. How are you? Trevor? I'm all right. Some somebody on Reddit accused me the other day of lying about not intending to see the Lion King remake in theaters. <laughs> I don't know what I'm supposed to do with that. Go see the Lion King remake in theaters with extra <sighs> like cause. I'm not going to. <laughs> Believe me. <laughs> I don't need to. I've, I, I saw the old one when it came out. I'm old enough for that. And you know what I'm old enough to do? What are you old enough to do? Remember when the song we're here to talk about today was on the radio. Which which one is it again? Whoa. Whoa. That How bizarre is that? How, how bizarre of you? How bizarre of us? I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you chose to follow my incredibly smooth segue with a very blatantly obvious one. That didn't work as well. I do it two times. It goes through two times in the intro, and then he starts rapping. So shrill. All the fellas in the back, street singers in the front. That's not a bad impression. Let's get this out of the way. I love this song. It's so good. I, I've, I've it, loved it since I was a kid, and I like remember hearing it on the radio for the first time. But that delivery, though, like, how does someone make that like voice and that just be their normal voice it's kind of kermit the froggy it is a little kermit the froggy it's 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 a little bit like this it kind of sounds like um like a, like a character from an austin powers movie <laughs> but sure. i'm not we're not here to roast we are here to tribute and i i'm here to talk about how this song can, can you just do the rest of the episode in that voice <laughs> I mean, it really wouldn't be a huge problem for me. I just don't want to disrespect the legacy of Mr. Fuemana by by doing such a crude interpretation. Polly Fuemana, what do you know about this guy? Lead singer of OMC, we should say. He's the lead singer of OMC, and he he he's a Kiwi, ladies and gentlemen. He is from New Zealand. Now stop you right there with a discussion question. Oh no, is Kiwi in 2019 a racial slur? I maybe I shouldn't have laughed at that. Um, no, <laughs> uh, no. Are, why not? Nah, because they. It's in. Ah, it's, this guy's not white. He's not white, but it's not a slur because it, I, feel, I feel like it's it's too endearing to be I, a slur. I feel mm. like the people who live there have embraced it too much. Oh, but, I, but I mean, mm. I don't live there. I don't know. I don't. I don't know a lot about. The social politics of of being of New Zealand, a person of 
Pacific Island descent, of Maori descent, who lives in New Zealand. Pauli Fuemana, he was born in the South Auckland suburb of Otara. In 1969. He had a big family too, right? I know he was raised by his uh, grandmother, and he had um, a couple older brothers and sisters, all of whom were like pretty musical people. Yeah, he had like like three older brothers, I believe, and one sister. Um, that sister, Christina, was an R&B singer who was fronting club bands in the late 80s in Auckland, and his older brother, Phil, was also a producer. They performed together in House Party, who released a single called Dangerous Love on Southside Records in 1991. Do you want to take a listen to this song, Dangerous Love? Get a taste of where they come from? Yeah, let's uh, listen to a little house party. Let's have a little house party. Go, go, come on. Let's do the dance. I actually quite like this. It, could, it feels like it reminds me almost of like Massive Attack or something in their early days. Yeah. a little dated but you know in a, in a good way it's a little dated but i actually like the drum programming a good bit solid vocal solid vocal very like i could see it being played at like 3 a.m at a club like after the, all the all the all the board of the floor 120 bpm dancing has been done and you're, you know, kind of coming down off your LSD and you're just kind of chilling and listening to some house party. Yeah, it's a good come down track. It's a great come down track. And now, who is this again? His brother and sister? Yeah, this is this is his sister, Christina, and his older brother, Phil. Phil produced it and Christina sang. I think that's also him doing the chopped up nobody, nobody. Uh, and the, the scratches, I believe, are also, which I, I think these, these scratches are passable. I know you're not much of a record scratch guy, but these scratches are passable, okay? I'll, I'll trust your judgment. Scratches are passable. So tell me about who else was in OMC. OMC was mainly Pauli Fuemana, but there was someone who was instrumental to the success of that record, How Bizarre, and that was Alan Jansen. You want to say some stuff about Alan? Yeah, I see here in your notes, which I'm just reading now, uh, he grew up in Wellington in the late 70s. He was inspired by punk and new wave, and he uh, formed a band called Steroids, in which he played guitar. Good band name. Yeah, it is a pretty good band name. But by the early 80s, his fascination shifted to electronica, and he started the Body Electric, better band name, a synth-pop outfit whose 1983 single, Pulsing, was a New Zealand hit. Better song? Let's find out! Let's listen to Pulsing. Bon, 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 on the Autobahn. Bon, 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 on the Autobahn. We are the robots. <laughs> I mean, that's basically what's going on here. It sounds like Devo, kinda. I don't really like this one. No, I don't either. I don't either. It, I feels, think this, like, this... it feels like I'm about to be killed by robots. <laughs> By Robocop himself. It, it sounds manic, and I appreciate that. But I don't know if I like it. The title is apt. The title is apt. 
So Alan Jansen relocated to Auckland in the 80s. He established his own studio, Module 8, and invested in the state-of-the-art Fairlight CMI, which popped up in the last episode. Uh, AHA had one of those babies as well. That was a digital sampler and sequencer? Yeah, that one. Completely outfitted with the famous Page R, the first digital recording machine. Of the many artists who came through the studio doors, Jansen was particularly impressed by young R&B and hip-hop acts from South and West Auckland. He had charred success with Chain Gang's Jump and Break the Beat. I couldn't find Jump. I could find Break the Beat. Both these records are being sold online for like $50 on Discogs. I figure there must be something pretty special about it. Let's have a listen to Chang Gang's Break the Beat. And see if we can hear what makes it special. Yeah. Hit me. Don't break me. Uh. Sounds like an air raid siren chopped up. Yeah. A theme is emerging with these productions. <laughs> <laughs> woman okay <laughs> it's certainly not in key i don't know about this one maxton i honestly think if i heard this at a club i might go on a bad trip with my lsd i think i might be spiraling here and feel i feel i might feel like this lady is coming out of the speakers like a giant head and just like looking at me and just screaming the video is not helping <laughs> Can you describe it? Very 1990. There's a guy with like a, some slick back hair and some square glassic on doing some Great. really aggressive dance moves as Great. he's rapping at me. I mean, they even put in the dun 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 dun. All right. Me and the brothers, right. we go to work. Now, now who was that? Who's that? That man? was Chain Gang with Break the Beat. If you want it, it's fifty dollars on Discogs. Okay. <laughs> I know what I'm getting you for Christmas, Trevor. And and Jansen produced that. <laughs> yeah, that that is that is um that it, it not only produced it, also had chart success with it. Huh. Okay. Sometimes when we're doing this show and like you play a video, I kind of space out for like the last like twenty seconds, and I'm not totally sure why we're listening to something. So I need to double <laughs> double back and check sometimes. Forgive me. <laughs> no, no worries. But yeah, after after those singles gain traction, particularly uh, in the Australian club scene. Yeah, I could see a bunch of Australians going absolute eight <laughs> shit to that stuff. James <laughs> <laughs> was uh, encouraged uh, by somebody from the Australian label Volition to put together a compilation that would showcase the burgeoning Polynesian movement, and the result was Proud, a Pacific street soul compilation, which was well, well received again, particularly in Australia. We know the audience here, right? One of the standout tracks from that compilation he put together was We Are the OMC, a rap anthem by a posse comprised of Phil and Polyfoymana, fellow MC Herman Lotto, and a couple other guys. And more! Yeah, and more. And the rest. And what OMC stood for was... Otara Millionaires Club. Otara Millionaires Club. Though the name was initially just a joke, millionaires being conspicuously sparse on the working class streets of Otara, it somehow turned out to be prescient. Spoilers for later in the episode. Why don't we listen to Otara Millionaires Club with their song, We Are the OMC? Let's find out who the OMC are. A 
again like I'm in a nightmare about robots. <laughs> no, you're in a nightmare about Otara. This feels like I'm I'm sipping on gin and juice. Kinda. That's what it makes me think of. It makes me feel like I'm on the West Coast. Not in New Zealand. I mean, I, I, that's just my American-ass viewpoint, but yes. Man, this song is five minutes long. <laughs> you need all those? Are you a friend or a foe? Ooh. I don't really know, coolie Joe, but if so, Because uh. if you're my friend, you're my friend till the end. No pissing with the visit. Can't be dismissed. That's what I'm, I'm saying. This is Edit Maxton speaking. We didn't catch it in the episode, and I can't find anything online that confirms or denies this. But I'm pretty sure he says, I ain't no fag lover. Which is very problematic, it has not aged well 25 years down the line. What changes in 25 years, huh? He'll break my nose! Okay, alright. Okay, that's that's the LMC guy. It sounds like him. So this guy has bars. <laughs> so that album was preceded by a national tour featuring many of the proud artists that uh, actually ended up losing money, but did boost their profile. That is a real ass sentence. I feel like that happens so often in the music industry, and it's just not talked about. I, I feel like more tours lose money than tours make money. I am. You got to spend money to make money. It's true. Yeah. So after the tour, the original OMC fell apart with Polly taking the name. Damn. He actually turned up late one night at Alan Jansen's door asking if Jansen would work with him on new recordings because he was really excited about all the work he did on that Proud compilation. I assume that'll be a key scene in the impending OMC biopic. Impending? Yeah, I mean, now that now that Bohemian Rhapsody has won an Oscar, they're just going to start making biopics for every band. People care a lot about him. Who's that guy who did Thor Ragnarok and What We Do in the Shadows? They should get him to make the OMC biopic. Why did yeah. he? <laughs> That'd be really good. That would be really good. I would watch that. Totally. It, th- does that count as being part of the rap cinematic universe? I think we could like probably squeeze in a cameo from somebody just to like tie in the loose ends. Yeah. The one hit wonder cinematic universe. <laughs> But anyway, not all of the proud participants were like totally on board with Chanson's input. In fact, a lot of them thought that uh, the way he was highlighting their Polynesian heritage uh, meant that the recordings didn't sound American enough. They're trying to break through. He was saying that was the entire point, though, to make something that was non-imitative and unique. And, you know, I think if that was his goal, he definitely accomplished it on How Bizarre. It's very, very unique. Uh, And Polly Fuemana also got what Jansen was doing. And he later told Simon Grigg, uh, label head for Ha Records, that when he had heard Alan lay down the acoustic guitar on We Are the OMC, he knew immediately he had found his new collaborator and mentor. Paulie and Alan. Paulie and Alan. And it together. The two best friends that anyone could have! And after they hooked up, uh, things kind of started happening for OMC, like, um... 
Andrew Penhallow of Volition Records arranged for them and another New Zealand band, Sisters Underground, to appear on the 1995 Big Day Out Festival in New Zealand and Australia. For the tour, OMC were joined by young South Auckland singer Sina Saipia, previously from the group Systematic. Sister Cena. A lot of sisters flying around. A lot of sisters. Sisters Underground, Systematic. And those shows in Australia were pretty well received, too, like with Clinton Walker picking Polly's star potential in a feature for Rolling Stone, in which he wrote, Foimana is an absolute natural, a man who sings and moves with the sharp, easy grace of a young Marvin Gaye. He also praised Alan for his part in bringing the music to disc. Marvin Gaye, hey. I, I don't know if I see that comparison, but... Let's get... Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Let's get it on! Let's get it on! Let's talk about the strange things that made this song a huge success. Did you know that when they were writing the song, they were first going to call it Doof It Up? Doof it up! Doof it up! Do you think? Do you think that was how it went? Doof yes. it up! Doof it up! And they just changed it. Oh, that's imagine. see. That's how you write a hit. Okay, you have to siphon through the garbage to it get to your hit. It never would have been a hit if it was called Doof it up. Or maybe it would have been. You know who the dogs at was big. I'm just trying to. I'm just trying to think about in the Chevy '69. Doof, doof it, it up. up. Doof it up! Doof it up! But doof it up is South Auckland street slang for a scrap or a tussle. And you know, Paulie had a bit of a tough background growing up. He hung out with like a lot of uh, gangs and criminals as a kid and even spent a lot of time in juvie. Sure, he did. So I could see him wanting to kind of channel that into a song. But I think How Bizarre was the way to go. Apparently, in the middle of Doof It Up and How Bizarre, they were going to call it Big Top in relation to that second verse where he talks about how the, the circus has left town. I wanted to talk to you about that second verse, where, or whatever verse it is where he starts talking it's about the them going to verse. the circus. It's the second verse. Where he starts talking about them going to the circus. I, I don't think it's them going to the circus. It's they are the circus. Oh, that's pretty deep. But anyway, yeah. at one point in the song, they pull into a gas station or whatever, and they see a poster for... A circus in town, right? Destination unknown as we pull in for some gas. Freshly pasted poster reveals a smile from the past. Elephants and acrobats, lion snakes, monkey. Uh, Pele speaks righteous. Sister Zena says funky. So they, they drive into a gas station. They see a poster for a circus and they're like, sick circus. Do we want to talk about everything that happens in this song? The, the first line, they get pulled over. Right. Okay, let's talk about the lyrics. We can talk about the lyrics. Yeah. They're all really fun. We never fun. talk about the lyrics. Let's, let's actually let's just let's dissect band. it. Okay? okay. We never talk so, about the lyrics. So. Brother Pele's in the back. Sweet Zena's in the front. Zena is actually Sweet Zena, the the singer from Sister Soul. Cool. So Polly's rolling with two of his friends, and they get pulled right. over by a, a, a cop car, and they're like, "Oh, geez, what's going to happen?" But when the police, the, when the policeman like gets to the window, he just taps the window, and he he lowers the shades and goes, "That is Chevy sixty nine." Which is how like bizarre. how bizarre, right? <laughs> so that that is a that is a strange thing to have happened to not get you know fucked by this cop that was definitely about to fuck you. But then, so they they pull in for gas and see the sign that the circus is in town, and that's, they go, "That's righteous, bizarre, funky. That's bizarre, though." But but here here's what I I wanted to talk about. Right? They go righteous, funky. They do say righteous and funky. Who has that like? 
if like who has that reaction to like seeing a poster for a circus or like the thought of a circus honestly like, <laughs> and like i assume that i'm supposed to think that the people in this song are cool but like animal cruelty righteous yeah. when, I, when i think of circuses i think of like even animal rhymes. abuse i think of like people with deformities being like exploited i think of like bad smells like and i think of like and like then later in the song like they talk about how like the they go to the circus and the ringmaster is like hey the elephants are gone uh, but the clown, but the clowns are still here, and everybody. They want a paycheck, and and people jump and jive as the clowns have stuck around. Who would be excited about that? Like now, the the news is here. The news is here, and the helicopters are here. I too. just don't get why you would be excited that the clowns are still there. Like people, like I don't know anybody who likes clowns. Do you like clowns? I'm not a big clown fan. I fucking hate clowns. You know. Shouts out to it. Ugh. <laughs> but then. So the Marines show up and 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 they're asking a ton of questions and Pele yells, we're out of here. And Cena says, right on. And so they left. And what happens you, next? I, I really need to know what happens after that. I want to know the rest. If you want to know the rest, you have to buy the rights from Polly Fuemana. And, and pay him a million dollars. That feels like such a 90s sentiment. Want another rest? Hey, buy the, the rights. rights. That's, oh, yeah. It's so, it's like so cheesy. And- Give me a sponsorship. <laughs> I also, I also just want to go ahead and on the record change this lyric to elephants and acrobats, animal cruelty. <laughs> Great. I'm just going to, I'm going to do that voice for. The rest of the show, please don't. <laughs> anyway, yeah, the lyrics are kind of, kind of, kind of weird, but I like this song a lot. Still, I think it's really good. So they actually came up with the line "How bizarre!" when Jansen said that "Doof it up" was too bizarre, and Polly thought of something that Alan always said, which is "How bizarre!" So there you go. Can't you see a, a, a dude of Commonwealth descent just going? How bizarre. I like that Polly is singing the song, but the lyric is something that Alan says because it really yeah. feels like Alan being in the song. Yeah, a little bit like that. Like that's his piece, you know, like yeah. that's like a secret he, shout he also, out. Also, you know, to like him. produced it and everything, but like Alan and Polly, the two best friends that anyone could have. The way you're the way you're saying it like that makes me feel like you're foreshadowing something in the future <laughs> and I'm not I'm not looking forward to getting there. I am absolutely not foreshadowing. Mm. Something that's so good about the song, though, you know, is Polly's performance. He, like, delivers his verses in, like, a conversational sing-song with that pronounced Polynesian accent. Like, If that's what you want to call this, uh, I call it an Austin Powers voice. Stop. (laughs) (laughs) You can't argue that it is utterly unlike any other current rapper or singer. Yeah. And then, you know, Alan brought in uh, Cena Sayapia to sing that sing that chorus and it's such a sister scene it's such a chorus without it the song would fall apart my favorite thing is the call and response with every time i look around when polly goes every time i look around around, it's so (laughs) good that part gives me chills (laughs) i think that's like that's what sells it you 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 have you have cena going ooh baby and that's the pitch but you aren't sold until she goes every time i look around and you just hear every time i look around around. The way he, like, kind of bounces.
bounces in between those syllables. It's just he gets so... in really, he like gets into the cracks of that chorus and worms his way through. It's very in the pocket. It's very great. And further flourishes included a mariachi-style trumpet played by expatriate jazz musician George Chisholm, an accordion courtesy courtesy of transplanted New Yorker and Jews Brothers founder Herschel Hersher, and the essential Maui strum supplied by musician and movie maker Lee Baker. It's the arrangements that really make this song, I think. Like, they're so interesting. They actually remind me of, like, an indie band from, like, the mid-2000s. 2000s i think they were on elephant six are you familiar with beirut yeah beirut are a pretty cool band and i think that's not far off for what this song sounds like i personally think this has a lot of resemblances to cake yep i can hear cake i can hear a little beck in it yeah definitely a lot of a lot of acts that were active around the same time so who knows maybe they kind of rub shoulders as far as inspiration goes maybe either of them heard this and had a thought of a new song to write who knows how this song could have influenced all the other artists in the world to create all the art that they have made anything's possible anything's possible including how bizarre being released as a single in december 1995 on the huh label which was an auckland-based indie label licensed through polygram which uh simon grigg had founded initially to release haynes album discussion question um trevor i'm starting a new record label i need you to help me pick a name uh, do you like who records or um, what <laughs> records, um, but where records or why records? What about when records? <laughs> when? Yeah. Well, I, I, I think that that's a winner. I think it's going to be when records. I, I would like you to sign. Here's your contract. Trevor, Trevor Aikrath, when records executive. <laughs> I, I can see it now. I like the sound. No, you're the artist. You're making the art. I'm the oh. executive. I'm profiting off you, Trevor. Oh, well, I want to stay indie. <laughs> oh, damn. Well. I'm not going to be no label slave, man. Where records is dead. When records. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> Did we mention that polygram from the baja men episode they're back oh was that them yeah all the chaos they brought on this world that means that somewhere up the chain is steve greenberg oh who yeah to, our good to, friend greenberg man r i remember him he he put his thumbs up on this before it went out supposedly maybe he was in the orbit what year here. was the what year was the baja men this would have been that would have been like three years later yeah that would have been like like three years later well the interesting thing is that how bizarre actually was released in 95 but it didn't chart in the u.s until 97 mm, okay so this would have been so, five whole years before baja men yeah but it, was a, it was a pretty slow kind of kind of burn and rise like like think about it like it's interesting to think that sometimes it could take like two years for a song to really you know get to number four you know what i mean mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It, it, when, when it when it came out you were just a just a lowly indie on huh records and now you know and it's interesting the way they finesse that because they're an indie but they're not an indie because they're with polygram but you know they have indie cred but even with all that indie cred they were reluctant to go with like such a quirky first single until they had their hand forced by uh, the enthusiastic reaction when Grigg and Johnson took the initiative and presented the record directly to Polygram Australia. Ah, and then they were like, whoa, mate, this is crazy. We got to get this out right now. The single won the immediate support of urban Auckland station, My FM, 
As the song's impact spread from its South Auckland epicenter, other stations began to rotate the record, and by the end of January, it was number one in New Zealand. It was released in Australia in March 1996, where it also headed to the top of the charts. That's how you, 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 it's a slow climb, right? First, you got to get that local success. Then you got to go across the pond. Then you got to go across the other pond. They still haven't made it in America yet. We're almost there, though. That's the second pond. We're almost there. By the time the follow-up song Right On was released, May 1996 in New Zealand, August in Australia, Polydor had picked up the option to release How Bizarre in the UK. In Britain. Though the record initially seemed to have flopped there, a BBC Radio 1 host, Chris Evans. The actor? Who, pl- who plays Captain America? Yeah, Captain America happened to hear it on a visit to Australia. What's, what's, he, doing in, what's he doing on the BBC in England? He's a DJ on the load like Idris Elba is. You didn't know this? Come on, get with the program. Ah, just, you know, Captain America DJing in Britain. I, I feel like there'd be some kind of conflict of interest there. He's Captain Gems. He's Captain Garage when he's in Britain. Captain Garage. He, Captain Garage in Britain. Anyway, Chris Evans was a big supporter of this song. Captain America put this song fucking on on his primetime breakfast show. And as it began its ascent to the British charts, Polly was summoned to London for a television appearance on that cultural institution, Top of the Pops. And no sooner had he completed the 20,000 mile round trip that he was called back to London again. I bet they looked like absolute fools lip syncing this on Top of the Pops. <laughs> yeah. I bet it wasn't convincing at all. Yeah, I wish I could find it. Yeah. Han label owner Brig accompanied Polly and mentioned stories of him uh, lip syncing to no one on, on the plane to Britain. <laughs> Getting that last minute practice in. You got to be prepared. Um, it's, and so began a pattern of globetrotting that would keep Fuemana moving around the world for the next few years, promoting his hit, all the while offering musicians he had just met jobs in his touring band and he met a lot of musicians on tour right like he like i i assume he wouldn't be offering any of these people a part in his touring band but he would uh he would go on open for uh u2 cheap trick the cardigans share smashing pumpkins and even the wu-tang clan and actually even performed on an aircraft carrier as bon jovi's support act max the discussion question (laughs) What? Oh, man, I have like three different discussion questions I want to ask you here. What, what like, unconventional, what unconventional venue would you want to play an infinite freefall show at? Oh, okay. Um, ooh, God, Aircraft Carrier is really, really good. It's really good. It's hard to beat that one. Aircraft Carrier is really, really good. I also want to give a shout out to Metallica for being the only band to play a show in Antarctica. I know they did that. That would have been one of my choices. I think I would like to play my show on an airplane. That'd be pretty sick. Yeah, I, I would like to be in midair. I would like to have a whole first class dedicated to the band. And then it's just kind of the rest of the plane is, is sort of just like you, you, they can all watch. I guess the viewing angles might not be great but it it would go viral as fuck okay it would go very viral how about you what ridiculous place would you like to perform at mine's similar but kind of the opposite i would love to perform a show in a submarine i thought that might be what you were gonna say that's very cool that's that would be very cool very wes anderson yeah you're listening to some music you look out the window you see a big fucking shark swim by or something it'd be fucking sick oh my god it's like an aquarium that's all around you yeah 
That or like a public bathroom would be pretty cool, I feel like. And like a really nice restaurant. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, now I'm thinking about Trevor Ickrath live, live from this Central Park bathroom playing for six rats. <laughs> Music for six rats by Steve Reich. Can we continue? Hey, knock it if you want, but those rats have been very supportive of my career. <laughs> i wouldn't be here today without you buddies thanks for listening speaking of people being supportive of other people's careers nice. um for Polly Flamana's family the single was no blessing no they weren't they weren't a fan of it i remember reading christine Polly's wife uh at the time and for like all of his life basically uh, said that it overshadowed everything at times. I think it was more of a curse in a way. It was a <laughs> curse. <laughs> the curse of how bizarre. But yeah, she said it took off so fast. I mean, it was so fast and crazy. He just went with it and it was sort of a ride. You couldn't get off. He was kind of stuck on it. That song was almost a treadmill in a way. It just didn't give the other songs a chance. I couldn't stand how bizarre. Oh? There were better songs than that. I just thought it was terrible. What? Yeah. At the time, uh, the two of them were living in a council flat in Auckland's Beach Haven. And when he needed the money to go to Britain for Top of the Pops, she gave him her earnings and they ended up missing that week's rent. Ooh, Polly. Yeah. Polly, you obviously did not watch Tenacious D. You, you messed up the first rule. It's always about the rent, Polly. <laughs> it's always about the rent. You can't lose sight of the rent. Oh, man. I, I guess he did get to go be on Top of the Pops, and that was pretty cool. But you can't pay your landlord in Top of the Pops VHS. So what did he do? Well, I'll tell you what he did. He finished the album he was working on. Oh, good. Yeah. They completed the album, which was also titled How Bizarre. Uh, that spawned a couple further singles, On the Run and Lord of Plenty. I like On the Run quite a bit. I'll say that uh, something I never do for this show is I decided to listen to the, this whole album, and I ended up really liking like good like half of the songs. I put together a very nice six-track EP that I can tell you about at the end of the episode if you're interested. I would love for you to... Meet me out back behind the recording studio. Right. I actually had the same experience, and... I, I didn't give it a detailed listen, but I was enjoying a lot of stuff on that album way more than I thought I would. Unfortunately, none of those other songs really had any impact outside of New Zealand. However, because of the success of How Bizarre, the album uh, went platinum in the U.S. Hey, big bucks. It hit number four on the Billboard Hot 100 in 1997, in the fall of 1997, nearly two years after this album came out. It's been quite a journey, gentlemen. It has. How many How many records did they sell, Trevor? They sold between three and four million records, Maxton. Uh, Whoa. And it ended up being New Zealand's biggest selling record. Is that still true in a post-Lord society? I don't, I don't know. think it is. No? I I, I'm just I'm just hazarding a guess based on the continued popularity of Lord in a way that I don't think that I don't think OMC's legacy currently enjoys the the status that Lord's legacy is, and I think that off that alone, sound logic. The, another thing we need to consider is that we're living in a in a in the the streaming era in a society, people. Also, it, it was different back then, just because you were selling CDs and you know. The album went platinum off the single. Like, they made all this money that they made because people had to buy the How record. much money did they make? They made, like, 11 million in royalties. And in 2007, Polly said he had only ever received 
Five million. Dun 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 record label fuckery. Dun 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 dun. dun Still, I wish somebody would give me five million dollars. Or a Grammy. Either side. It'd be fucking tight. Yo, if I had a Grammy, I would do shots out of it. If you are listening and you have any way to get us a Grammy, please get us a Grammy. Email us a Grammy. Send us a Grammy. Letters of the world. She's gonna make a Grammy to our patrons. (laughs) What Patreon? Anyway. By this time, Polly was still a pretty wealthy man spending his newfound fortune on clothes, cars, recording equipment, and international holidays for himself and his six-person family. He had six children. He would generally live the high life, but he was also growing exhausted. And this, combined with his short temper, led to numerous, sometimes violent confrontations. Can, can you imagine the guy singing How Bizarre Being Violent? It's very hard for me to do. <laughs> hey, bruv! Hey, I really, I really wasn't a fan of that, bruv. You, you need to leave me alone, man. I'm gonna rough you up. I'm gonna rough you up, bruv. Apparently, he did rough somebody up. There's like a report of him assaulting somebody at like an American record label. That's not good PR. No. What it is good for, though, is talking about what went wrong. Yes. Uh, but first, discussion question. Uh, Trevor, if, let's say you are. A, a super famous one-hit wonder. You've been touring the world for two years, and you're starting to crack. Hypothesize your own fall from grace. Well, first, I would get really into drugs. True. Like Which ones? Heroin. Ah, I would get the really classic. Into heroin because that's the cool rock star thing. You know, that's the that is the rock star thing. That's yeah. the hardcore one. Yeah. Then I would probably, I would probably end up alienating the other people in my band. Okay. Um, Specifically, my drummer, who was my best friend from high school. Oh, no. Him and I would have an, there would be an irrefutable riff between the two of us, and I would end up kicking him out of the band. Oh, no. And that would mark like a real sea change, and people would be like, he's lost it. He's out of control with power. Would you be performing at those shows, and it would be billed as a full band show, but it really just be you just trying to struggle to play both your instruments at the same time on stage alone with feedback? The rest of the band would be too afraid to leave, because we'd be doing too well, and they're like, maybe he'll pull maybe he'll pull up. But I would just get more into the drugs, and I would get more abusive of my bandmates, and my like ideas for content would just go get more and more out there. And I think I would just spiral out of control. And oh my god! Like I would eventually like drive like a motorcycle off of Mulholland Drive and Jesus explode upon impact. Oh my god! That is hypothetically tragic. Yeah. Do you think you would release some kind of giant bloated awful like Be Here Now album, like Culture Two, or would there be like a like a like a, a lost? infinite free fall like smile type record where it's like oh he was about to create his masterpiece and then he just was like then he self-destructed and we'll never get this but here like season three of Chappelle's show take these outtakes that like circle around the internet i torrented them and put them in a loose sequence as to what we thought the track listing was going to be here's the last great infinite free fall album right exactly that's exactly what would happen that would be my fall from grace that would be my untimely demise god but let's talk about what went wrong. Uh, among the missteps in Fromana's short inter- Let me start over. Let me just start the fuck... Can we start the whole episode over? No! Okay. Um, <laughs> Records. Why don't you just read this? I will! 
Among the missteps in Polly's short international career is that once Polly got his own management, the Australian company treated OMC just like any other rock band and put him on tours when Polly and his ringins weren't really much of a live act. I thought that guy from before said he was like a natural Marvin Gaye. I'm not sure how you would make an OMC live performance good. Maybe that Rolling Stone guy got paid off by Hunter Records. It almost kind of sounds like he didn't really just want to, like, I don't know, do the work, though, because you have this quote in the notes uh, from, is this from Greg? Where he says, yeah, this is from this is from Hunter Records owner Greg. He said part of that was my fault because I brought management on board that came out of that old school thing and especially australia was very rock and roll it was get up and play go play your dues and probably was never that artist so maybe he was more of like you know maybe he was more of a studio creature maybe he didn't have the wherewithal for touring greg says that he made mistakes too like effectively signing over huh <laughs> to polygram australia though the song and subsequent album was still released on huh <laughs> then again without giving the major label ownership they may not have pushed the song around the world sacrifices he says i've always beaten myself up all the way through we should have retained control far more but we were kids we were novices that actually hits home ouch yeah and Polly rebelled ouch. against the pressure from the record company uh tony foimana one of his older brothers uh who toured with him as his bassist uh has this whole quote where like he talks about one of the more memorable incidents that happened on omc's tour bus in san francisco oh baby i will take the liberty of reading this quote from Tony Fuemana. We had taken a 20-hour bus trip and we got there at 6 in the morning. They wanted a TV interview at 6.30 a.m. Polly asked him if he could just have a shower and something to eat before he left. But they threatened to pull the concert that night if he didn't do the interview. The rep said, you have to be there at 6.30 or we will pull the plug on your show and the rest of your shows. Polly said he wanted to go back and talk to me, but they got him and pulled him from his shoulder off the tour bus. Paul turned around and pushed him back because he didn't want to be manhandled, and then the rep fell through the window. The guy said, I am going to sue you. So Polly want to push somebody through a bus window? A record label executive that wanted him to go to his 6.30 a.m. interview. To be fair, when you're in the entertainment industry, 6.30 a.m., that's unreasonable. That's, that's... I don't know. Again, just wake up, dude. He said, you, you could take the kid out of Otara, but you can't take the Otara out of the kid. We've always learned to be who we are, and you can't change that. So yeah, assault a record label executive. Yeah, but just push him out a window. Punch Not, The bus wasn't moving, right? It sounded like this bus was stationary. Got it. Anyway, when record sales peaked, uh, the Foymanas began spending their money, uh, but what they didn't know was that they still had some bills from overseas that would get slapped onto their account. For some reason, the record label kind of put the brakes on their second album, right? Probably because they saw that they were becoming a one-hit wonder. Mm-hmm. And additionally, he was under pressure from his international agents to work with other producers than Allen. And then this resulted in a critically and commercially disastrous cover version of Randy Newman's hit song, I Love L.A., recorded in the U.S. with American producer Peter Zizzo and featured in the Rowan Atkinson movie, Bean the Movie. Alan Jansen and Fuemana would not work together again for almost a decade. Should we listen to that cover, that Randy Newman cover? I think we should listen to this Randy I'm, Newman cover. I'm worried. I'm worried, too. Bean the movie. Bean movie.
write these lyrics. I know, but I'm u- I want him to be rapping, I guess? He's not even a bad singer. He's doing a similar thing to the How Bizarre thing. I mean, he's mostly talk rapping on How Bizarre. I think he is singing here with his full throat. I actually don't understand how this is as disastrous as the source claims it is. No, it's, it's just kind of mediocre. It's 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 not terrible. It's a little okay. That's a little corny. All right. I love LA. All right. <laughs> I, I love LA. Not, not great. Not great. Not not the. It's not how bizarre might have contributed to Polly and his overseas backers going their separate ways uh, after he insisted on returning to New Zealand for his grandmother's funeral in 1999. After which he would never tour internationally again. Ouch. His grandmother Ouch. raised him, you know, I imagine this was quite a blow. He didn't even make it to the 2000s. Like he, and th- like, just think about how quick that was, okay? Because 1999 is two years after... The Billboard peak, and it took the song two years to get to where it did anyway, so it was kind of just like up and then like right back down. Mm. During the late 90s, Pauly made good on that Altara's Millionaire's Club name. He bought a flash house and a Hummer and lived lavishly, partied hard, giving away cash and cars to friends and his extended family, even though there were no more hits to keep the money rolling in. In 2002, his family home was sold in a mortgage sale, and in 2006, he declared total bankruptcy. Discussion question. What what singer, one-hit wonder or otherwise, home would you be most excited to purchase in a mortgage sale? Any singer. Yep. Can we get rappers included? Yeah, sure. Uh, I want Kanye's house. <laughs> I want Kanye's house. I want I Drake's house. It's got a bigger pool. You want Drake's? So cool. We're neighbors. <laughs> it's got a bigger pool. But I, I, I can still come over to your house and use your pool, right? I think so. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> then, then we're fine. <laughs> Unless by getting their houses, we inherit the beef. Right. 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 I think that I think that's actually in the clause. Unfortunately. Bummer. What's his? So, what's the name of his house again? The Yellow Estate. The Yolo Estate, yeah. For yeah. a short time, you could find it by going on Google Maps and typing in Yolo Estate. It would just take you straight to his house. I, that's how I found out where he lived. I like knowing that, like me, Drake also names his houses. Anyway, OMC, heartbreaking. Yeah, let's talk about what came next. The legacy of OMC. Yeah, in 2007, uh, OMC released For All of Us to commemorate the Human Rights Commission's Race Relations Day, produced and co-written by Jamson. Hey, they're back now! The two best friends that anyone can have! The gentle, appealing song featured a guest appearance by actor Lucy Lawless, internationally known for her title role in the TV series Xena, Warrior Princess. Princess. How fun. (laughs) However, unfortunately, surprisingly, it made little commercial impact. Huh? Records. While the accompanying video, in which Fomata appears gaunt and uncoordinated, prompted questions about the singer's health. Oh no, it's getting sad again. Yeah. Though Jansen and Fomata developed other material this time, the partnership once again dissolves, and no further OMC records would ever be released. Forever, ever? Forever, ever. Yeah, and he was, uh, Fomata was eventually discharged from bankruptcy in 2009. Oh, that's in nice. In January the following year, he died. Oh, shit. Oh, 
I wasn't shit. ready for this No, part. no, no! In January the following year, he died at North Shore Hospital due to complications uh, from a rare neurological fuck. disorder. Fuck! So poor, guy's di- poor guy dies from a neurological disease. That sucks! You don't even, like... Is that going out like a rock star? Not really. It's just a uh, sad ending. God... Kirstein said that his family had known since around 2002 that there was something wrong with him, but he refused to seek treatment. He only saw a doctor when Kirstein became pregnant with her sixth child. The deal was, she said, if you want this baby, you need some help. I can't look after you, five kids, and a baby. All right, I'm sorry to laugh at that, but it took you six babies to come to that realization? Like, yeah. you know, I got this rare neurological disorder, but I'm I'm just gonna keep popping out babies because if I have children then that means I live forever, right? <laughs> I'm so sorry, Polly. Polly's gonna haunt the fuck out of me. Yeah. Anyway, it was revealed that he was suffering from progressive demyelinating polyneuropathy Neuropathy, neuropathy and auto and <laughs> anyway it was revealed that he was suffering from a progressive demyelinating polyneuropathy and autoimmune disorder similar to multiple sclerosis you know you never hear about people having single sclerosis well because one sclerosis is manageable it's just two that just when it gets out of control it was really tough on his family, and what was particularly hard was a lot of people were saying that his deteriorating health had something to do with, like, drug abuse, but Kirstie maintains that, like, he's never really done any hard drugs. He only ever smoked marijuana, and even then only, like, occasionally. Shouts out, I smoke weed every day. Shouts out. But, like, uh, but, you know, she said, I think it was a lot of, oh, that brown boy from Atara. Definitely. People think he was that bad boy from the street, but he wasn't. It was all old school Maori values, and he was raised by his nana. And she said that reading OMC was a one-hit wonder hurt a lot, she said. So, obviously, she would not be a fan of this episode of this podcast. No, no, not gonna... She- sign off on this unfortunately she said the album was amazing it was a beautiful album and you know what i agree there's a lot of beautiful music on that album there's a lot of special like unique stuff going on on that record and it's really good she said q magazine gave it four stars but i think people forget that the other tracks actually did very well overseas it used to frustrate him so much because he used to say how many times can i do that song which is you know something we've seen before on this show norman greenbaum like going all the way back to him he was like Look, people just want me to do this one thing. Great. Ten whole episodes ago. Yeah. It's just like, I'm more than just a human jukebox, okay? I have other feelings that I can get across. And I, I think he felt like he had a level of, like, talent and, that wasn't completely recognized or realized in his life. And I, it, it's just a little depressing to me. It's just like, we only have, you know, one album from this guy. I really would wonder what a second OMC album would have sounded like. His talent really does shine through on that album though. I think, I think. So. you know, I got to agree with her. It's an amazing record. It's a beautiful record. It's, it's, it's a good one. It's a keeper. I got I to agree. Do you want to, uh, you want to just go ahead and lift the curtain on what that, what that, uh, custom track list is while we're here? Oh, sure. I could talk about that now. Uh, it's, it's six tracks. Um, I think I actually ended up leaving off one of the singles, but you know, I didn't, didn't really like it. So what I, <laughs> what, what I ended happens. up with was opening with, uh, on the run track two is how bizarre, of course. Right. Number three is never coming back, which is a really good mm-hmm. one. I actually like that one a lot. That one's really good, right? Number four is Breaking yeah. My Heart, which is pretty good. Also really cool. Cool drum breaks yeah. on a lot of these. A lot of these kind of sound like, like, I was getting sort of like, 
Madchester vibes from a few of these, like kind of Happy Mondays ish. Yeah. The number track number five is Angel in Disguise, which I really love, and then it closes out with Right On, which is a really good one. Right on, and uh, honestly, like it, it's. It's cool how the first five songs in that are just the first five songs in the record. But, you know, like, second halves of albums in the 90s, people were taking un- unnecessary risks. And a lot of it didn't age well, and, you know. Yeah, they're hit or miss. We're not here to judge. We're here to appreciate. Christine said, I just want everyone to remember that he was talented. He was a great writer, and he could play every instrument. Wait, really? That's, that's pretty cool. You should... I, w- I, I, I wish he would have done that on the on the record. Where are the, where are the demos of him playing every instrument on the record? And he's not here to defend himself, so I will. Speaking of defending themselves, that's uh, what uh, Alan Jansen and label owner Simon Grigg had to do uh, at Polly's funeral after he passed. Why? Uh, because apparently they were threatened by fellow mourners at the uh, funeral <laughs> who approached them. What the fuck? And told them to pay up. Oh my, okay, wow. So this is a case, an active case of the people attempting to rebel against perceived record label fuckery. And you know what? On a level, gotta respect it. Yeah, yeah, I mean. But what is the side of their story? But first, before what is the side of their story, what is the most vile shit that could go down at a funeral realistically? Um... I assume when, like, the dead person's mistress shows up. Oh, scandalous. You know? And then, like, says all this revealing shit. Mm -hmm. Funerals, some crazy shit. Someone should write a movie about it. A funeral would also be a pretty cool place to play a show. Oh, that is a great, that is a great thing. I would love to, I would love to do a a funeral tour. How would I go about planning that? So following uh, Polly's death, Simon Gregg wrote a book, How Bizarre, Polly Foymana, and the song that stormed the world to tell their side of the story. Even though Simon hadn't communicated with Polly for some years before his death, he's aware that the book is not likely to go down with some of his family and supporters, like the guy making threats to funeral or the family members who claimed in the media that on the day that Polly died that $50 million was missing. Grig refutes this in his book, saying that each $5 single would have had to generate $17 profit for that to be true. At any rate, he had steeled himself for some flack. And the book also told of how the charismatic Polly Foymana could turn on the charm and turn it off in an instant. His violent temper unleashed even on his closest collaborators, including Grig, who he often addressed as a white devil when he was lashing out. He seems like such a chill guy on the record. But he's not. He's not. He's like, this is, it, it, I, I feel like, honestly, no offense. One of the last people I would imagine to have this crazy, like, burning out, pushing people out windows and fucking, you're a white devil. Fuck you. Just obnoxiousness. People said that Paul was extraordinarily volatile. He was a terribly hard person to work with. Paulie had a persona, the charismatic thing, which was very embracing of people. But he was very hard to deal with, and it was unpredictably hard. And a situation would just flip instantly. I think part of it was his background, where he came from. And part of it was just the unpredictability of a lot of artists. That reminds me of what Kirstein was saying, though, you know, about how people thought he was just this, like, tough kid from the streets. Yeah, exactly. He's more than than the place that raised him. So he grew up, had a hit song, went broke, died of a neurological disorder. <laughs> Max, can you tell me the rest about this guy? Well, 
First, you need to pay me a hundred thousand dollars and buy my rights, so we can make how bizarre the Polyflamana story coming soon to theaters. How about instead of doing that, we just talk about some covers? I think that I think that could be pretty good. I actually only found two covers really worth talking about. The first one is is pretty. Uh, the first word that comes to mind is bombastic, but that feels wrong. Bombastic uh, is not a word I think of when I hear how bizarre. No, but listen to this per- this tribute performance from the APRA Silver Scroll Awards 2010 shortly after he passed away. All right. Ooh, Every time I look around around. (laughs) Okay, but this is also beautiful Yeah, it's pretty epic (laughs) Why? Like, why does it sound like a Kanye West song now? Sorry, this, this this falls flat on its face for me. Yeah, they could have done a pretty good drop there, you know. <laughs> that that instead you get the you get that guitar, and I don't. Uh, yeah, that could have been orchestrated a little. No, I, I wanted I wanted the rest of the song to sound like that. Um, but I want to listen to all of this because it goes to some pretty fascinating places. All right. Good life, trumpet. This is pretty faithful. Yeah. I 
the what they're like doing with it is vastly superior to the original arrangement. Honestly, what you, like what, what part do you like better? What do you like better about it? The arrangements are pretty similar, I think. No, all the like jazz chord voicings and like tension that's being built and stuff like that, and like these verses and this intro. Those are the coolest parts of the song to me. This is pretty neat. It feels like, like I said before, like kind of like an epic reimagining of the original track. I think it suits it pretty well, actually. But like, I still enjoy the more like kind of more casual sound of the original. Yeah. Like I wouldn't listen to this every day, but I think it's I think it's a marvel. This is like if like Shigeru's like covered Abazar or something. Yeah. It's got the kind of emotional catharsis going on. I love that about it. Never would have expected a song like this to be covered with that. But something I like so much about the original track is kind of how small it feels. You know, it's like just it's True. not like the world is fucking incredibly absurd. It's just like, you know, almost like a shrug, like how bizarre. It's in my face. Thanks. Oh, he's shouting about the actual name. Pretty cool. I mean, like, that's basically a eulogy for the guy's whole life. So I I get trying to do it as faithfully as they could. Because, I mean, like, uh, still up until that point when that was filmed, there was still no Lord. Like, he was the one, you know? For for a long time, he was the only only claim to fame for New Zealand. Yeah, I guess that's true. He was representing them on a global scale, yeah. He was. He was the first person to do that on a global scale. But now, let's listen to our parody. Oh boy! Of how bizarre that actually went viral. Viral. It was popular in the '90s. They were playing it on the radio in New Zealand when How Bizarre was out. It was a contemporary parody that has survived somehow to be on YouTube today for us to play for you. And that is called Stole My Car by Dean Young. Let's listen to it. This instrumental is really easy to find, evidently. Got my brothers in my back. Got my brothers in the front. And we're cruising oh, down Finner Street in the hot, hot sun. We pull into the KFC, going to get our food. Pile out on the holding fast, cause we're feeling Man. the need. Five minutes later, pigging out, fill up to my eyes. I'll go back to the parking lot and ow, some bugger stole my car. Stole my car. Bugger! Huh. Not unfortunate. Now, I was real pissed off, no one knew just how I feel. So we went looking for the wanker who had stolen my cool wheels. We went into the cop shop, talked to the police, said out, Mr. Copper, bro. Some bastard stole my car. Stole my car. Stole my car. Better story than how bizarre. A little now, bit, Mr. I policeman. guess. Mr. Policeman. We <laughs> <laughs> the next time I looked around, around. The next time I looked around. The next time I looked around. They do it. Great. 
Beefed off! Jump into the cop car. Went for a cruise around. I wonder how it I ends. Keep your father's aisles peeled for an HQ holding colored brown. I love this. And just then we saw it. It was parked outside the pub. Our Mr. Copper, oh, there it is, bro. That's the one. So we went into the pub and we made some inquiries. Saw a fella at the bar with my bloody car keys. I'll sit to the copper fella. There he is. <laughs> Stole his car. Stole my he doesn't car. land Stole any car. of the ends of the verses. <laughs> I'm a big fan of it. Now you are going to jail. <laughs> Stole my car. You know, uh, Stole my car. <laughs> YouTube user, YouTube user Tomb Bomb 69 <laughs> 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 brings up a, a, a valid critique of this track. Uh, KFC KFC ain't even on Fenton Street, eh ho? It's on Ferry Springs Road. <laughs> Still like the song, though. <laughs> How bizarre. <laughs> Truly. Do you want to talk about our attributes? <sighs> Holy shit. Yeah, we made it. Yeah, we made it. Uh, we made it to the part of the episode where Trevor and I make attributes for every song that we cover, and we use a different scale for every episode that we do. But it's got to be the same scale per episode. It's got to be the same scale per episode, but it's it's a different scale every episode. Yes. Max, do you want to go first? I say we do audio rock, paper, scissors to find out who goes first. Okay, what do you choose? <laughs> Yeah, I'll go first. Uh, so I'm gonna. Um, so the scale that I picked is actually an homage to the old Clint Eastwood movie, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Sure. Noted racist Clint Eastwood. Noted racist Clint Eastwood. No, no, sorry, that's John Wayne. Clint Eastwood is just a Republican. <laughs> Noted Republican Clint Eastwood. You have the ordinary, the extraordinary, and the bizarre. I like it. So the ordinary goes to uh, the drum break. I think the drum break is pretty ordinary. It's not particularly exciting, but I think if it was, it would be distracting. So I think it needs to be ordinary, but it's certainly the most ordinary thing about sure. the song. Uh, now, the extraordinary is the catchy, uh, mouty strummed guitar hook that would be later stolen by sugar ray for their song fly you want to have a listen to that for a second and listen to this plagiarism oh, you know i'm always down to listen to some sugar i ray. love sugar ray 420 <laughs> same shit it's similar i can hear it if you slow it down by half it's the same The bizarre is his voice. Let's be honest here. You really like his voice. 
I, it's true. The only person I've ever heard deliver a full rap like this, and I respect her so much. So, hey, make the hits. How bizarre. Like, thank you. Thank you for doing that for us. Since you cut the accordion and the trumpet out of your attributes, I want to award my first attribute to those because I'm such a big fan of the arrangements in this song. They're so good. They kind of come out of nowhere, too. Like, it starts off as a fairly basic, like, acoustic track, but then those come in and you realize, like, oh, this is something special. So let's get to my attributes. Uh, For my attributes, I decided to, uh, I decided to kind of, like, add a question mark to the song title and turn it into a question, (laughs) which I could, like, effectively answer. So the question, you know, is... How bizarre. So I decided to tell you how bizarre each of these track elements are. Great. Cool. So that accordion and the trumpet, I give that uh, experiencing deja vu, you know, the unsettling and inexplicable feeling that you've experienced something before. Ah, that is bizarre. My next attribute I wanted to award to uh, the call and response in the chorus. Not all, not only the like, ooh, baby, ooh, baby part, but the part that both you and I love that every time I look around, which is so now good. the best part. Um, how bizarre is that? That's like encountering a complete stranger that is able to tell you every minute detail of your life, despite you having never met them before. Oh, pretty bizarre. Isn't that Rain Man? Pretty bizarre. That's not Rain Man. That's not what Rain Man is about. <laughs> you should watch that movie. I should kind of watch classic movies. The last thing I want to award is that one chorus towards the end where everything but the drums and the vocals drops out. Because that's like my favorite part of the song and it always gives me chills. You know what I'm talking about? Yes. I wish that was the end of the song. I wish they didn't go in for one more chorus after that. I think that would have been a pretty fitting ending. Yeah, you could cut it there with them going. It's in my face. Yeah. Anyway, how bizarre is that part? That's like uh, waking up in a house you've never been in before in a body you don't recognize to find that you're married to someone you've never met and that everything (laughs) that you thought has happened in your life has all been a dream. Or as I call it, the full David Burke. This is not my beautiful house. And you may tell yourself, this is not my beautiful wife. Letting the days go by. This is not my beautiful house. Not my beautiful wife. This is not my beautiful wife. Wow. Those were some truly bizarre responses. I gotta hand it to you, Trevor. Thank you. You have a penchant for the bizarre. And we have a pension for wrapping up episodes, so let's do it. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the 11th episode of One Hit Wondercast. You can find us on Twitter where our handle is at One Hit Wondercast with the numeral one out front. If you want, you can reach out to us with your impassioned emails or audio recordings at One Hit Wondercast all spelled out at gmail.com for a chance to be featured on the show like Chris from Sydney who sent us a wonderful email about the first time he heard Rapper's Delight and I wanted to read a little bit sure, of this Sure, I enjoyed here. hearing about this too, um, that was fun this, this, is pretty, this is pretty funny He said it was in the movie The Wedding Singer In that movie, the grandma raps the song and it's the first rapping grandma joke he can remember and it's been done to death since Anyway, his aunt bought him a copy of the soundtrack for Christmas, and it had the song on there, but it was only the four-minute edited version. He then decided to learn every lyric of the abridged version, including the fabulous verse about eating in a friend's house and not liking any of the food. Soon after, he heard it come on at a party, and he bragged that he knew every word of the song. He had many doubters, but... He went off and started rapping, only to discover the horrible truth after one verse that the song was actually 15 minutes long. (laughs) Hubris. 
hubris, humorous hubris, or other podcast. It will be the end of all of us. Oh man, that was we did another episode of One Hit Wonders of the World. Thank you. That was a that was a that was a tough one to get through. Was it just me? That would no, that was tough. That was I I feel for Polly. I hope you're feeling for Polly right now. I hope that maybe you could track down this book that Alan and Guy from Ha huh wrote together. Maybe you're interested in that. I heard there's a, there's a lot of cool stuff about Polly out there in the world. A lot of cool stuff about OMC. This is just a sampler, a taster. Speaking of samples and tasters, why don't we give our listeners a sample of what we're going to be talking about next time? Next time on One Hit Wonders of the World, you can catch us talking about Weezer's 2004 hit, Beverly Hills. That's where we're going to be. That's where we're going to be. We got to get out of New Zealand. It's too cold over here, man. Does it get cold in New Zealand? It's too warm over here, man. It's an island, man. It's an island above. We've got to get off of here. It's too warm all the time. Tune in next time to hear me impersonate Rivers Cuomo's voice. Please don't. I'm really afraid what you're going to say about Japanese girls. We'll catch you that time then. Until then, I've been uh, Chevy69. Nope, I'm Trevor Ickrath. And I have been rights-buying Maxton Stenstrom. And until next time, stay wonderful, breath. Great. Wow. That was was a a rough one. Yo, (laughs) that was dark.